Precision Medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking about pharmacogenetics and the intersection of pharmacogenetics and precision medicine and policy. For this discussion, we have two excellent guests on the show. We have Jennifer Lee and Megan Anderson-Brooks, founder and principal respectively at Innovation Policy Solution. Innovation Policy Solution was founded in 2019, leverages over 15 years of advocacy experience to assist organizations to fundamentally change the way research is done, the way medicine is practiced, and the way healthcare is delivered. They're so perfect to have on for this discussion because of their known role as a champion in healthcare innovation and their deep expertise in precision medicine and critically, the world of politics. So without further ado, Megan, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, excited to be here. Oh, absolutely, I've, I've loved our previous discussions and that depth of expertise really shows through. So before we get talking about policy per se, and before we get talking about pharmacogenetics and precision medicine, I'd just love to start with you two and with Innovation Policy Solutions. Can you tell us a little bit about the company and the work that you all are doing? Yeah, happy to. So Innovation Policy Solutions is a, is a full-service government relations consulting firm. We're headquartered in Washington, D.C., but we work with clients throughout the country because we focus on federal or national-level policy. So that means we focus on Congress and what the executive branch or the president's branch of government are, are mostly working on in the agencies. Our expertise tends to be in the precision medicine space, as you said. That's most of where our focus is, and we represent clients who are diagnostic companies, tools manufacturers, digital or health-related software companies. And we also work with nonprofit organizations such as patient advocacy groups, as well as provider physician organizations. All of them, as you said, are working to try to change policy in some way, mostly to advance innovation and drive its adoption in the clinic. And we feel very blessed to have the opportunity to help them with that. And I'll add one of our core principles, as you mentioned, we both have a scientific background, is that we really do believe that if your advocacy is really grounded in good data, that you'll have an impact and you'll drive real change among policymakers. It's the same thing in the clinical space, as well as in research, that quality of your data is critical. And it's the same thing with policymakers. If you really show them the evidence, then they'll usually take action and, and put new policies in place. That's terrific. And that piece you just latched onto, which is each of you have quite a unique history. Uh, you had really interesting journeys to land yourselves at this intersection. I, I can't imagine there's a terrible number of people at that intersection of policy and precision medicine. So maybe before we, we go any further, can you each dive in and tell us a little bit about your personal journey to find yourself here at this interesting nexus at this great point in time to be there? Maybe starting with you, Megan, how did you land yourself at this place at IPS today? So yeah, I'm a neuroscientist by training, actually, as you mentioned, clearly very passionate about all things related to science and healthcare and research. Um, and when I was at the bench, I was studying the formation of new neurons in the adult mammalian brain. But I was also partnering with others at Rutgers University who were focused on stem cell research. And at the time, there was a state referendum to provide additional funding 
for stem cell research that failed in the state. And it was a surprise to me and others who just assumed it would pass. There'd been a lot of historical support for that kind of policy, but the economy had just taken a downturn. And it was very obvious to me that when scientists and professionals are engaging in the policymaking process, you can have failures like that, even when there is a lot of support. There's a lot of influencing factors in the way that policy gets set. And I think the most important thing is that we're thinking about how to engage and have productive conversations. And so that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to shift my career into thinking about how can I help others have productive conversations with the public and with policymakers about how science and policy impacts each other. So from there, I took a turn and I joined the Eagleton Institute of Politics and was at the New Jersey Department of Health and their chronic disease division before deciding to come to DC and working on the federal level. And I eventually connected with Jen, who was this equally interested in working in cutting edge and difficult topics. And I think we'll, we'll talk about a few of those. And we've been working together for seven years now. And it's been really fun to, to try and tackle a lot of these, these issues. It's certainly very fun. Before we dig in, Jen, how about yourself? How did you land yourself in precision medicine policy? Yeah, so I often joke, as far as I know, I'm the only board certified genetic counselor who's also a registered federal lobbyist. So I think that is my my unique perspective here in DC. But I am a genetic counselor by training. I came to this area to attend graduate school at the Hopkins NIH program and was doing clinical research at NIH for three years. And in my research there, I was looking at how things that were more societal level, like carrier screening for population-based approaches to screening, things like that. And Long story short is I was always interested in how society integrates new technologies into practice. And in my research at NIH, I was focusing on things like genetic privacy and making sure that all the patients enrolled in clinical trials were consenting and aware of risks for genetic discrimination. So I was always kind of interested in these issues. And one of my mentors told me about a new policy fellowship that the American Society of Human Genetics was sponsoring that was designed for genetics professionals to transition their career into policy. So I applied and was accepted into the fellowship. It was the second year the program existed. It's now up to their 17th fellow. And I loved it. You spend part of that training working in the office of the director at the Genome Institute. The time was Francis Collins. So you see policy from the executive branch, and then you find a spot in Congress to work the rest of your fellowship. And I was really fortunate to get an opportunity to work on the Senate Health Education, Labor, and Pensions, or HELP Committee. That's the committee in the Senate that has jurisdiction over all health policy programs in the United States. So that's a very active legislating committee. And it was incredible experience and I loved it. I thought I'd go back to clinical research, but I stayed and I was gonna stay a third year in the Senate and I got approached by Affymetrics to direct their DC office. And so I moved to the other side of the table and was a lobbyist for the first time in in house at Affy and got to work on genetics policy. It was great. It was able to blend my two passions, policy and genetics and was perfect and wanted to keep doing that. So I started consulting in 2008 a colleague and I spun out a firm called Health Futures that focused on precision medicine policy. We got acquired by another lobbying firm in DC. And that's where I met Megan was through that firm. I hung out there for about a decade. And then in 2019, decided to go back out on my own again with Innovation Policy Solutions. So I feel very fortunate to have the opportunity to be able to focus on genomics and precision medicine policy because there aren't that many opportunities to specialize in that here in DC. That's terrific. You know, one thing that comes up often when people are doing medical commercialization is 
first they think about the technology and then they start thinking about clinical and clinical workflows. And then as they get more nuanced, they start thinking about what will the impact of that be on reimbursement and what do we have to change with reimbursement? And there's a whole bunch more layers to this, but but you two seem to have taken it to that final layer of what would public engagement look like to actually build broad coalitions around this, I think is really terrific and very exciting. It does strike me though, that with precision medicine, we see progress just stepwise, year by year, moving forward. But in politics, we see noise. We see a ton of noise up and down. Things are going to be shut down and they're going to be racing forward. There's lots of hopes and dreams and then fighting back against those. And it really, I think, begs the question, which is how much does engaging with politics really matter? Is the technology driving the progress or is engaging with the politics a key piece of that? That's a really good question. I'll start by saying that policymaking is a long process and there are many things that have been accomplished that have taken many, many years to get across the finish line. We've seen them, we've been a part of them. And so there is a certain amount of patience that goes into not bringing an idea to the final stages of this is the legislation that you're going to see at the end. But then even after that, right, you have something that becomes a bill that becomes a law rather. And then you have all of the work at the department and agency level to implement that. So things that we've been working on for many years, it seems like we keep working on the very similar issues because as the space is evolving, sometimes the policy needs to evolve along with it. But yeah, to your question about politics and and how much does that matter in shaping the final outcome, you know, it it matters in, in all of the obvious ways. We're all reading the same headlines. And certainly in the U.S., the outcome of the election and the resulting events takes up a lot of time and energy. And I think that's a big part of thinking about, well, what are we going to be able to accomplish January and February? What is taking up space and energy in conversations on the Hill? And when we go into offices talking about topics unrelated to those things, we just need to acknowledge what is happening in D.C. and what is taking up a lot of energy. But we're also focused on the smaller scale, the things that are going to have a long-term impact. For instance, Jen and I are taking a look at who's going to be in leadership roles in Congress and how the selection of those people will drive whether certain issues are going to be made a high priority or not. Just a few days ago, we were surprised by a change where Senator Patrick Leahy from Vermont is now going to be the chair of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Intellectual Property. And many of your listeners might be like, what kind of impact is that going to have on precision medicine? But that subcommittee had been very interested in patent reform legislation the past few years and specifically interested in changing patent eligibility in such a way to allow for the patenting of genetic sequences and its association to disease or health condition. So Jen and I had been paying attention to that, very interested in this change and what that means for how this conversation will evolve, whether it's going to be made a priority or not. So just something as small as that is a big change from our perspective and a big change for clients who are interested in this topic. And obviously, we're also paying attention to what's going on in departments and appointments. We're just paying attention to last night, an appointment in HHS that might influence how that agency is thinking about the regulation of lab tests, for example. And then there are bigger names and bigger appointments that everyone's paying attention to that have more obvious implications. We had talked earlier about Eric Lander's selection as director of Office of Science and Technology Policy. And we're pretty excited to have a champion in the White House, someone who's going to be focused on precision medicine. 
And that's exciting for many people. And we're still waiting to hear on others, like who's going to be the commissioner of FDA as an example. But we're also starting to see movement now on other confirmation hearings, like for instance, Javier Becerra's, who's expected to be the HHS secretary. So all of those little things, I think, have big implications for what you're going to see in the coming years. But I also think we need to acknowledge that there is a great deal of effort to create bipartisan and bicameral pieces of legislation. I just talked about gene patents as an example. You had two senators, Senator Chris Coons from Delaware and Senator Tom Tillis from North Carolina, a Democrat and Republican working together to try and advance legislation. So even though we have shifts in the Senate, we have shifts in the administration, we still have champions from both sides of the aisle on an issue that's going to mean that that conversation continues. And there are other examples. So the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which is a federal law here in the United States that essentially gives the bare minimum amount of protections people have against discrimination based on their genetic makeup in both health insurance and employment. And it passed the Senate unanimously. It passed the House nearly unanimously, 414 to one. There was one no vote. But, uh, and then President Bush signed into law. So it's a piece of legislation that had tremendous support bipartisan. But in 2016, the Obama administration, Department of Labor, put out rules that actually essentially gutted all the employment protections in that bill. And if, and if finalized, would have created a, a legal loophole for employers to coerce genetic information from their employees. And the strength of GINA is that if your employer doesn't have access to your information, they can't use it to discriminate against you. And this would have allowed them through wellness programs to access that information. So advocates were very concerned about it when the rule was finalized. In fact, there was a lawsuit to challenge the administration and, and the judge threw out the rules and directed the Department of Labor to redo them. And those two rules actually just came out uh, before the change in administration in January. So President Trump's Department of Labor finalized the rules again, um, or put out proposed rules, I should say, to again allow some incentives used to access that important genetic information from employees. So you saw a very bipartisan support for legislation, and then you saw an Obama administration attempt to dramatically weaken the bill, and now you saw a Republican administration also try to weaken the bills. And it'll be interesting to see what, what President Biden's administration will do. Those two proposed rules are currently in a regulatory freeze. President Biden did that on the day of the inauguration. He did a 60-day freeze on any regulations that were there in 60 days of taking effect from the Trump administration are paused. And this is in, in them as well. So we're just in this holding pattern waiting to see what his administration will do. But it's a great example of who, who is in power can really affect regulations and protections that patients have. Politics matters. Bipartisan is still alive and well. And watching the appointments and the rulemaking and the long-term foundation setting is, is actually truly important for an area like this, where we know we need to see some changes and getting them right is critical. I, I love it. A couple of those points in there, I think we'll come back to later in this conversation around gene patenting and the potential implications of that. For now, let's actually, let's pivot into the topic that we often spend a lot of time on, which is pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenetic adjacent areas that are related to politics. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the recent changes in the regulation of lab developed tests. We know that some of this has been changing due to the uh, awareness that's happened around COVID and COVID testing. There's also been ongoing changes over the last couple of years uh, related to these regulations, and, and it's been a focal point. Can you tell us a little bit about this history and where we are now? 
as it relates to lab developed tests? Well, as you mentioned, I mean, this conversation has been going on for many, many years. There have been various pieces of legislation that have been offered. Stakeholders have been very engaged in saying what they don't want and saying what they do want for for many years. Before the pandemic was a thing, we were very focused on pharmacogenomic testing regulation. FDA was engaging in some enforcement activities that was influencing the way that companies could provide information to professionals and patients about what the findings meant in terms of how someone could act on that genetic information that they were getting. So there was a lot of activity focused on what is FDA's role in regulating laboratory-developed tests in particular. And more importantly, not just what their role, but how are we going to set policy that provides clarity? Clarity to companies who are thinking through what they want to do in the next five, 10 years in the space of lab testing, and then also professionals who are thinking about what they need to do at an institutional level. So as you mentioned, COVID really changed things because it shifted everyone's perspective. It shifted an entire year where we thought we were going to devote attention to this or that. And then suddenly all policy was focused on COVID-19 and for very important reasons. But as you mentioned, something that was a bit unexpected was that lab testing became front and center in everybody's lives. Suddenly everybody, including my own mother, understood what is a lab test and why is it so important for making decisions about our healthcare. And we saw missteps early in the pandemic when it came to getting testing out there for people to use. Both the CDC obviously was involved, but FDA after that had a role to play in in shaping policy to allow those who were interested in not only developing kits, but those who were interested in developing laboratory-developed tests. These agencies had a role to play, and, and obviously there were a ton of lessons learned. And so you saw Congress paying attention to the regulation and what was working and what isn't working about the way that lab tests are regulating in a very new way, because suddenly it mattered and people understood why it mattered so much for their their own families, to be frank. So I think you're seeing it evolve because now people don't just understand that it's a policy issue that's been talked about. And yes, maybe it'll come up for future consideration, but I think people are much more heavily invested in the conversation and ready to engage in it in ways that they hadn't been before. The other thing that's changed is we also have the FDA user fee authorization legislation that's going to be moving in 2022. And many believe that this is a perfect vehicle for including a bill on lab test regulation. And certainly there's still questions around how should lab tests be regulated? Should they be regulated as medical devices or not? And then separately, should FDA have jurisdiction over laboratory developed tests? Are they a product that's within their purview or not? And these are all questions that are being debated by stakeholders now. But as we think about user fee authorization legislation and who's in charge of that conversation, we see changes in the committee level. One change in particular, Senator Burr, who's a leading co-sponsor in one of those bills, who's now in a leadership role for the Senate Health, Education, and Labor Pensions Committee. So he's going to be very involved in developing that legislation and as a champion for one bill that's being considered and in a very 
clear role for influencing what the result of that conversation is going to be. And of course, as a Republican, that's not the party in power in the Senate. Now, Senator Patty Murray, who was previously the ranking member, is now the chair. And she's from Washington, which was a region of focus during the pandemic because of the local efforts to get COVID-19 testing up and running early in the pandemic. So both of their staffs are extremely knowledgeable and very educated about this topic. And I know they're going to be carefully considering it. So it's something that will be a focus in in the year and following year. Uh, How unusual is it for a window of interest and exposure to show up for a, a niche area like this? where you have senior members of Congress that are now aware of it, that are thinking about it, that are devoted a lot of staff time to it. Is that common in precision medicine that you see this kind of opening arise and where everyone's paying attention to it? I think if I can jump in for precision medicine, I think the last time I saw this would probably be genetic privacy, then probably stem cell research was a huge national issue. So it does happen. It does pop up. But I think what Megan was explaining, which is something to keep in mind, I think what's unusual in the lab LDT oversight space, and I'm sure it's people who listen to your podcast, they've all sort of experienced this regulatory whiplash, right? Like it's 2014, FDA puts out a framework to regulate all LDTs. 2016, FDA commissioner announces, we're, we're not going to finalize that framework. We're going to work with Congress. And so if you're an innovator and you're a company trying to figure out what does this mean for my test, you're watching Washington go from one extreme to the other. And we just saw that happen again last year with COVID, right? So initially FDA said all tests for COVID have to have emergency use authorization. Then it was, well, you have to at least notify us and intend to submit an application. And then in in August, you saw HHS basically put out a statement and said, FDA has no authority, even during an emergency to regulate any laboratory developed tests. And so it's just this constant back and forth. And so I think COVID made this issue front and center for every staffer working in Congress and every Senate and representative's office. But before that, I think for all of us, it's felt really active, right? It felt like it's just every minute, you're not sure what, what's going to happen next and what is FDA or Congress going to make us do. Does that lead us towards a place where now because of all the focus, we can land on a singular course for a while? Or is it just more noise as we continue to shift back and forth? So I, I, I heard the piece around uh, privacy, genetic privacy, and that was a big one. And it did land us on a course for a while. It, would that be a, a reasonable or is it too optimistic of an outcome to expect here? Yeah, I mean, I think we joke that there's issues that are zombie issues. They just keep coming back up. Genetic privacy is one, gene patents is one. It's just, right, there's momentum behind it and suddenly they're front and center. And even on the gene patent one, you would think a unanimous Supreme Court decision would put that issue to rest and it's still resurfaced in the last couple of years. So, so there's definitely zombie policy issues. But with oversight of lab tests, I think what it's really shown is that there is a need to address this issue and get clarity on it once and for all. Because when we're in an emergency like we were in the early days of the pandemic, people who want to develop tests to help public, help patients, help our healthcare providers, they need to know how to do that and how to get their tests out there as soon as possible. So the clarity is needed. I think that that did create a sense of urgency to solve this. The real challenge is what, what, what does that solution look like? What is the appropriate regulatory pathway? And, and I'm not sure that the stakeholders on that full spectrum of positions has reached consensus on what that is yet. But there are groups that have very strong opinions. Is it just FDA should only regulate the highest risk tests and everything else should be a modernized CLIA program? 
or to the other extreme, should it be all LDTs should be pre-market review by FDA. And as Megan was mentioning earlier, and you asked, do politics matter? And they absolutely matter on this issue because in August, HHS put out a statement saying FDA has to undergo rulemaking before it can regulate lab tests. And last night, HHS announced a new appointment, their new counselor for public health and science who reports directly to the secretary and will have significant influence in the HHS regulations and policies the agency publishes came from an organization that lobbies for that position for a strong FDA regulation of all lab tests. So it's interesting to see what will she do in that new role and how will that affect the HHS policy that was published last year. And I'll add that some champions come and go. It's always interesting to see like who's going to be the champion and how long is that champion going to stick around for? How much, how much energy are they going to really put into it? And going back to the, the LDT issue again, Senator Burr has already said he's not going to be running for re-election in 2022. So that puts a lot of weight on how much can they get done in the next two years while you have someone who's willing to champion it from a certain perspective. And, and certainly if he's going to retire at the end of this, it changes the dynamic again. And, and all the stakeholders will have to factor that in in their thinking for what happens if a bill doesn't end up in the user fee legislation. Lots of lots of interesting activity. I could ask you a hundred more questions on this. I know there's one more I would like to before we move on. It, it's so interesting around where we go with pharmacogenetics, but that one relates to the pharmacists. So if we if we switch our thinking and the I think the the action on lab developed tests is going to be enormous, and we we all see that, and I think everybody around us now sees that after the whiplashes you put in of last year, and it matters. And, and unfortunately, it's a hard problem to solve, even at a policy level. So even though I think a lot of the hard problems are in the technology, it, it is some hard work to be done to figure out what's the right solution at the policy level. But pharmacists are another challenge here because they, they have seen their role change throughout the pandemic. And they are another key piece of delivering precision medication management or pharmacogenetic testing and consultation and support. Can you walk us through some of those changes and what you've seen happen for pharmacists in this landscape and, and how it might affect or benefit the adoption of pharmacogenetics? So I think one of the changes we saw in COVID was a lessening of regulations to enable easier access to care. And in terms of COVID-19 testing, that was allowing pharmacists to order or prescribe a test for COVID-19 and administer them. And for many people, that seemed like a no-brainer, but it actually was quite a significant policy change in that what it essentially did is expand their scope of practice, expanded through regulation what pharmacists are allowed to do in their day-to-day -day practice. And over the years, Medicare said that that would require a change in law to allow non-physician providers to expand their scope of practice and provide additional services that typically are only allowed to be performed by physicians, and that would be include prescribing tests is typically something only physicians can do. But CMS was able to do it during the public health emergency and enable pharmacists to order COVID tests. So the question is, why then isn't CMS doing more to allow pharmacists to order additional types of tests? As you mentioned, they're the key player, the key health professional in medication management. So should pharmacists be allowed to order pharmacogenomic testing? And I think a lot of stakeholders would say, absolutely. It makes the most sense. They're the ones that are most likely to understand what to do with that information versus a primary care provider. So I, you're starting to see a lot of stakeholders 
advocating directly with CMS that they should expand the pharmacoscope practice even more to allow additional types of testing. And we have proof now they can do it through regulation, but we're getting a lot of pushback and hearing that Medicare feels that that's going to require a change in law. That's really interesting. And I think for us, you know, we've been at this point of the discussion with so many people talking about expanding scope of practice, talking about enabling both the ordering of tests and what can we do? How can we imagine a future where pharmacists are maybe better reimbursed for clinical pharmacy services? So it's great to hear that this is also something that's active in policy discussions. And there is movement on a file that I think many pharmacists consider to be unmovable. Very positive to hear that. Uh, last piece here on, on pharmacogenetics. And, and this is an area where I think a lot of people in the space see promise. That's value-based care. So we've seen value-based care talked about. We've seen it grow in, in stature and awareness. We also haven't really seen it succeed as many people expected it would. If we go back five years, eight years, we start to look at a landscape where people really thought value-based care and value-based care models were going to take over. You know, I guess one question, what, what happened? Why do you think from a policy perspective, it has grown so slowly? And, and are there any reasons you think that's set to change? I think that's a great question and it's a very complicated area of policy and there's probably multiple reasons why value-based care hasn't taken off the way we all thought it would. And from my perspective, I think one of the main reasons it hasn't is the fact that patients weren't at the table early on. So a lot of these value-based care models, these are these assessments as to how to establish the value, whether or not they factor in costs, things like that. Patient advocacy groups weren't part of those discussions. And I think once you saw some of those decisions being put into practice, the patients felt they disagreed and they, they saw value where perhaps a model felt there wasn't value. A very oversimplified example could be a really expensive $200,000 course of chemotherapy that only extends survival for cancer, particular cancer for two or three months. And so the value-based care model might've said it's not worth that expenditure. But if you talk to a patient who that means they can attend their daughter's wedding or some other aspiration or milestone in their life, they see a lot of value. So you started to see a lot of the patient advocacy community pushing back on value-based care in DC, which I think took a lot of folks by surprise. They didn't expect that reaction. So I definitely think that's a huge factor. And specific to precision medicine and diagnostics, one of the big barriers was that laboratories were not allowed to participate in value-based arrangements. So you couldn't use this type of information as, in that space as well. And that had to do with two federal laws and their regulations, one's the Stark law and the other is the anti-kickback statute. And they wouldn't allow labs to participate. The last administration did finalize new rules that actually did change the policy. Laboratories can now participate in those value-based arrangements. So I'm curious to see if that ushers in some change, especially in precision medicine. However, and it's a big however, is that they were finalized so late in the year that they are underneath that sort of regulatory limbo right now where President Biden put that freeze in place on January 20th that any regulations finalized in the last 60 days of the last administration are currently paused and frozen. So we're waiting to see if they get finalized and implemented as we hope, or if they get rewritten or revoked completely. But I think that might actually open the door quite a bit for laboratories to participate. Out of curiosity, how long is that window open for the Biden admin to reconsider those rules written in the last 60 days of the Trump administration? It's indefinite. It was an executive order. So he just put in place a freeze so that anything 
that it falls within that window is just sort of frozen in time. And then the Office of Management and Budget in the White House is supposedly there, it's now their job to review them and make a determination as to which ones they'll finalize. And there's a lot of rules that fall within that that are probably really a high priority to your listeners. Things like there was an update to the HIPAA privacy rule that allowed patients easier access to their records. There was the physician fee schedule, which sets Medicare payment for the each year. That actually is within that window too, and it's currently frozen. So that's the type of rule we think will make its way out. But it, there's no time limit as to how long OMB will take to review them and what decisions they may or may not make. A lot of it has to do with staffing up the agencies because they'll want input from the new HHS. And as we said earlier, there was a whole round of announcements last night, but they're still very much in the process of hiring people right now. Lots of, lots of interesting news to be watching for here. That's great. Yeah, it's striking to me when we talk about that value-based care policy work that was done some years ago during the Affordable Care Act. It, it sounds a lot as though the problem they were trying to solve was a hard one. Pointed that out with lab-developed tests, that it's actually a hard problem. What to do? What is the policy solution to this hard problem? And it suggested to me that in value-based care, they might have run into that and didn't realize they had until after the fact and hadn't done that patient engagement you brought up. Really great points. Excellent part of the discussion, but I think there's there's a whole other world of precision medicine that isn't pharmacogenetic related or adjacent. And, and maybe here we can talk about some of those other key areas. One that came up earlier in the discussion, came up in our last call and was really fascinating, is the area of gene patents and gene patenting. So can you can you walk us through that? What's the debate? Why is it important? And and maybe you can paint some examples for us of, of how to think of the implications of gene patenting regulations going one way or the other. Yeah. So before 2013, the Supreme Court decided the Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics, there, the U.S. Patent Office granted patent applications and proved them for patents on DNA sequences and genes. And there was a long time where advocates were concerned that that was delaying research, that people had to pay really high licensing fees to study the, the parts of the genome that were patented at the time. I believe about 20% of the human genome was patented. So it was a, a significant proportion of the data being locked up. From the patient side, patients felt really concerned that they didn't have good access to tests. There would be one diagnostic provider. And the case that, that went to the Supreme Court was Myriad's patents on the hereditary breast and ovarian cancer genes. So advocates and me with the support of the ACLU filed a lawsuit to challenge patents on DNA, whether or not they are products of nature and thus not subject to be patent eligible. The Supreme Court in 2013 ruled unanimously that in fact they are products of nature. Myriad did not invent anything and therefore the patents were invalidated. And we went from a situation before that decision where one company provided those tests, sequencing of those two genes for about $4,000 to the day of the decision, five additional new companies immediately launched testing for the BRCA genes. And today we've seen companies offer that test for a self-pay rate as low as $250. So it's, it's really shown how removing the patents on those genes has not only enabled dramatic patient access to genetic testing, but it also significantly reduced the cost of, of that testing. On the other side of the issue, there's a lot of advocates and stakeholders who believe that the lack of patents in this space has slowed innovation and made it difficult to innovate in the diagnostic space and particularly in the pharmaceutical space. And so there have been lobbying Congress to pass legislation, which would basically be the only way to overturn the Supreme Court decision would be to put a new law in place that does what you want it to do. 
And so they're trying to put in place legislation that the proposal we saw in 2019 basically was written in a way that it put everything on the table. Essentially, everything is patent eligible because it wiped out 150 years of case law from the lowest courts all the way to the Supreme Court essentially just says all of those decisions are abrogated and everything is patent eligible. And so you can imagine those stakeholders who was behind the Supreme Court case were pretty anxious over this. And I guess a good example, and so as Megan said earlier, um, that legislation had a lot of momentum. There was a hearing, three hearings with 45 witnesses, but it's since slowed down a bit, one, because of the change in Senate leadership after the election, and also because the lead Democratic senator, who at the time was ranking member on the subcommittee, is no longer in that position, and they, Senator Lay is taking over. So we're hopeful that, that some of the momentum behind that is slowed. But a really good example right now of that is if someone had patented the sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, had early on, like as soon as it was sequenced and discovered, someone filed for a patent on it, that would have meant no one would have been able to develop a diagnostic test for it. And if you look at FDA's website, there is over 200 emergency use authorizations for molecular tests for COVID-19. So you can imagine if someone had a patent on it, there'd be one test provider in the U.S. unless they license it to other labs. No one would have been able to do research to develop therapeutics or vaccines for that virus. So we'd be in a very different situation today in our response to the pandemic had the U.S. Patent Office granted a patent to the SARS-CoV-2 RNA sequence. So I think that's a really timely example as to why gene patents are a concern and why so many stakeholders are really actively watching the Senate in particular, the subcommittee on intellectual property to see what they do this year on this issue. Goodness, just imagining that, that potential version of the universe we could be living in, one where there is only one lab test, there's only maybe one vaccine in development. Wow, what a different world and, and seriously big implications for gene patenting. There's a couple other areas. I know we've talked through these previously, maybe Maybe you can take us on a little bit of a ride. What are some of the other areas of precision medicine policy that are really important right now or that are picking up steam right now that you think are going to be important areas for us to be looking at in the next months or couple of years? Data privacy comes to mind. I know we mentioned that earlier. In particular, it comes to mind because, again, the pandemic has really changed the thinking around data privacy. And certainly there's been interest in doing something on the federal level in the U.S., on data privacy and creating new requirements associated for for entities and companies taking identifiable information and using it in ways that are outside of some of the other policies that exist. Certainly a lot of the activity happening in both the EU and in California to develop their own system for regulating this space has influenced it. But you know, when that was all happening. And the thought was that, okay, we need to quickly do something on the federal level before California's system takes effect. That day came and it went and nothing happened in the federal level because there was still two specific issues that were holding up the advancement of legislation. And I think COVID is going to reignite the conversation because now again, we're thinking about the use of information And what does it mean for the public good? And can we do it in a transparent way that gives everyone a sense of comfort over how that information is being used, as opposed to the other extreme, 
which is that information is going to be used for monetary purposes only to a large extent. And it's done in a way that doesn't involve someone's explicit consent. And obviously, the use of digital technologies and contact tracing, it was very interesting to see these case studies, like each country taking a different approach and the pros and cons with taking those different approaches in contract tracing. We had a couple of data privacy champions introduce legislation that was specific to the pandemic. Nothing made it across the finish line. But again, I think this year we're going we're gonna to see those same champions on the Hill talking about it again and trying to get to a place where we're seeing a federal standard take shape because in the implication here for those who are in the precision medicine space who are developing, for instance, health apps that are using health information in a way, but they're not a HIPAA-covered entity per se. So they're existing in this place that's been a point of focus for many members. They're going to start seeing more states get more invested in developing legislation. We have California, Washington's been a big focus area. Now Virginia is looking into past legislation and data privacy. And so now what we're seeing in the United States is this patchwork system where we have different regulations, different requirements in different places, and you either have to create a system if your company is is trying to, to exist across this entire country. You either take a different approach or you just take the most rigorous approach and just raise the standard to that. And so because that's become so complicated so quickly, many in this space are advocating for there just being one federal standard that are all expected to meet. So it's interesting. It's definitely something that I think that will receive serious consideration here in this Congress. And then another area that I think is really interesting is that we're still seeing focus on American competitiveness. And I think this is a really interesting space in particular because you've also seen Biden's administration recently signal that they're going to care about this too. They released this by American executive order that directly impacts procurement activities for government agencies. But again, I think it's a signal that this issue of just American competitiveness in general is going to be an area of focus that continues for this administration, for this Congress, certain actors in Congress in particular. And, and how that relates to precision medicine is that there's been a lot of focus on genetic information and what does having access to that genetic information mean for our national security? There's attention on researchers and clinicians who are outsourcing genetic sequencing to, for instance, Chinese companies. There's focus on the acquisition of precision medicine companies by foreign companies that's allowing U.S. competitors to amass vast amounts of information. So there's this concern that the U.S. isn't going to have the edge that they need to be the leader in precision medicine. And so you see all these downstream effects like the Biden administration putting out by American executive order that has implications. There's also other concerns more unconvincing, unconvincing in, in my opinion, about like the weaponization of genetic information or it's used to blackmail someone. But there's also thinking about the biosecurity standards that we put into place around all of this. For instance, the security standards that we have for screening customers who are ordering tools and whether other countries are adopting and holding themselves to similar standards. And you're going to see members of Congress and this administration probably continue to draw attention to 
businesses and entities in this space, they're going to be not only drawing attention to, but also developing policy to prevent. I'm thinking about tool manufacturers. There's been a lot of focus on preventing tool manufacturers from providing tools to China as an example for could be because there's concern that those tools are being used in human rights violations, particularly against the Uyghur population. So I think my biggest takeaway for this policy topic is that not all attention on precision medicine is positive. And you're gonna see certain parts of the government like the Department of Commerce and the Department of Defense taking a hard look at entities and companies and the movement of information in this space. And it's certainly going to be something to keep an eye on. And, and it's going to trickle down into really specific policies like by American policies that are, can impact even other countries like Canada. And I know that there's already talk about exempting Canada from some of those by American requirements that the, this, this administration will be pushing. So it's very interesting. And yeah, there's a lot happening on the outside of that's not directly to re- related to regulation or reimbursement that, that could be impacting precision medicine. Very, very interesting. Some of these topics make sense on first glance. You, you hear gene patents make sense. Data privacy makes sense. Lab developed tests make sense. But then there's some of it, as you caught me off guard with last time, the idea of thinking of downstream implications of bioamerican policies in terms of national security, synthetic DNA, outsourcing. There's so much there. It really makes you wonder how we keep all of our elected officials uh, knowledgeable and engaged with the latest thoughts on these tough areas, you know? as we pointed out earlier, hard problems that are going to require some pretty innovative solutions at the policy level. Excellent stuff. So with that in mind, what would you each like people to take away from this? When they think about the intersection of precision medicine and politics, how should they be thinking about that? What should their takeaway be on that point? One of the main takeaways is there, as much as people criticize Washington and have have a lot of opinions about what goes on here, there's so much tremendous opportunity And if you don't engage with policymakers and invest in building relationships with government officials, congressional offices, then you're going to miss out on those opportunities. And some of them are are then presenting them to the public and others are, we have a lot of clients who have incredible ideas and we can work with them to try to get those ideas put in place and implemented and create that opportunity for them. So we strongly encourage that even if you're, as you said, being the call, people don't tend, as they start developing their products, they may not be thinking about reimbursement, all the downstream policy implications, but we strongly encourage that companies think about this throughout their business development and start investing in those relationships because the worst thing you could do is parachute into DC when you're in crisis, like you're being enforcement action from FDA or investigated by Congress or something else, it's much better to have those relationships in place beforehand so that you can work with them. And I'll add one more before letting Megan share her thoughts is that just while we were talking, President Biden just released a statement of over a billion dollars for co- to investment in COVID-19 testing. So diagnostics is front and center even this morning and more investment in it, not just in it, making it more available, such as in underserved populations in schools, but also investment in sequencing of the look at viral strains. So lots of opportunities happening daily here in DC. That's terrific. Don't parachute in when you're in a crisis. Yes. Noted. Uh, and Megan, how about from yourself? What are the takeaways you would suggest to people? Well, I think Jen raises such an important point about instead of reacting, being proactive in those conversations, it's so much harder 
to take a look at something, a piece of policy and try and have something removed or try and get something changed. If you have that developed relationship with an office that's going to be having a hand and in, in shaping something, you know, it's going to be happening, then you can go in early, educate them, make sure that it makes sense from a scientific perspective, what they're actually writing down. And we've done that a couple of times with clients where we've gone in and offices have the best of intentions. And really the best policy comes from that active engagement between an office and the stakeholders and everyone's on the same page and you get something that's really helpful and exciting and in the end that everyone's on board with and and that's where the best policy comes from. So yeah, I just want to, I guess, piggyback on what Jen's saying by saying, be proactive, don't react. Be proactive, don't react. I love it. So for all those listeners who are taking this advice and heeding it, where can they find you? Yeah, well, we're on, we're on LinkedIn. You can also go to our website. It's still in development, but basic contact information there. It's ipolicysolutions.com. So we're happy to talk to anyone who's interested in engaging more in Washington. And if you are in crisis, we will help you parachute in. So that's <laughs> too. But, our, but we like to, to be more strategic as well. Parachutes and pre-parachute prep. Uh, well, I, I love the conversation. I love all the depth and context that you two bring to it. And it's always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Jennifer, Megan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Oh, thank you.